0: Well, good morning, everybody. Let me be a, another one to wish a very happy Father's Day to all of you dads out there who are with us today. It's wonderful to be together and to have a chance to uh, to worship. For those of you who may be new, my name is uh, David Klein. I serve as executive pastor here at Taylor's, and it's my privilege today to have a chance. Just to share with you uh, from the pulpit in light of Paul's absence, he's been out at the Southern Baptist Convention this week and on vacation with his family. So uh, pray for him. Pray for him while they're away and for a time of rest and reflection and replenishment uh, while they're out that direction. But while we're here, uh, those of you who have been here over the last several weeks know we've been in a series in the book of Ruth. And we're going to wrap up our time in Ruth today today. Uh, as we look at the last chapter uh, in the book this morning. But as we wrap up this series today, I want to begin by asking you what I think is a very thought-provoking, very penetrating question, a very sobering question, and that's this. If you had a chance to live your life over again, what would you do different? If you had a chance to hit the start button, to start over. What are the choices that you would most like to make, the changes that you would most like to see happen in your life? Well, Tony Campolo is a pastor. He's also a sociologist. I don't know if you've read any of his books or heard him speak before, but he tells a story, uh, not so much a story, He speaks of a study that he read of 50 people who were age 95 or older who were asked those questions. If you could live your life again, what would you do differently? And they gave lots of different answers, but as they combined and collated all of it, there were three, three specific answers that came up time and time and time again. And here's what they said. Said if I could live my life over again, here's what I do. I would first and not in any particular order, but they said I would reflect more. I'd reflect more. Second, I would risk more. And third, I would invest my life and my time in doing the kinds of things that would live on and continue on after I'm gone. In other words, what Tony Campolo is saying is they, they would stop and they would think and consider with intensity the kinds of things that maybe they'd taken for granted the first time through and they would make some different decisions. And he's saying, if we did that, sometimes we don't. He says, sometimes we fail to reflect and risk and focus on the things of ultimate significance. But he said, if we did that, if we stopped and considered with intensity those things, he said, we just might enhance the potential for our lives to make a more meaningful and more lasting impact. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow is a famous American poet. And he once wrote these words on the screen. He says, lives of great men all remind us that we can make our lives sublime and departing leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. And I think what he's trying to say is that everybody is inspired by great men. We're all inspired as we look at great men and great lives that people live. But we're also reminded as we look at those that that we each have the opportunity, we each have the potential to make our lives significant. And what I mean by that is significant in a way that not only makes a lasting mark on the here and now and the people who know us in this life, but we have the potential to have a significant enough impact that would leave ripples that would carry on for generations after us and make an impact on people who may not even be here yet. We'll find that out and discover that today in Ruth chapter 4. And that's where we're going today. If you want to have your Bibles, open them up to Ruth chapter 4. And as we, as we come to our text this morning, we're going to look at one man and the actions taken by one man, a specific action that he takes Here in this chapter and how he seized the moment that God had put in front of him to make a decision that ultimately became the very foundation of a life and a legacy of loyal love and faithfulness that as we sit here today, we still remember. All right. And so what I'd like today to do today is simply look at Ruth chapter 4. We're going to look at the whole chapter as we wrap things up, like I said. But I just want to walk us through the text. I just want to go through four sections in this chapter, offer some observations along the way. And then lastly, uh, share with you four takeaways, if you will. I don't know if that's what you want to call them. But four things to consider as you and I make daily decisions and think about how do we how do we leave a legacy that is significant? How do we live our lives in the here and now in a way that's going to make an impact for generations to come? And so look with me, if you will, at Ruth chapter four, starting in verse one, this is how it begins. It says, now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. And so he said, turn aside, friend, sit down, here and he turned aside and sat down and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said sit down here so they sat down and as we come to these first couple of verses i want to pause for just a minute and say this is where redemption in these first 6 verses redemption is being considered and we see in these first couple of verses that boaz is going to take initiative he's a man of action He's proactively taking a step to put himself in a position to make a difference and to do the right thing. And so he goes right to work. No grass grows under his feet. He heads straight for a very important place called the city gate. And he goes to the city gate for a couple of reasons. Number one, the city gate was where everybody, as they came in and they came out of the city, they would pass through as they were going to places like the fields or the threshing floor, or if they were traveling to another city, that was a place where people came in and out. And so he knew by putting himself in that position, it would be a matter of time before this closer relative would pass by. The second reason is because every legal transaction, personal and civic business were the things that happened at the city gate. And so decisions were made and things were formalized. And, and so Boaz is saying, by asking this man, going to this place and asking these people to sit down with him, he's saying, listen, I have a matter and I want to settle it quickly. And what was considered last week in Ruth chapter three as more of a private matter is now going to have a public settlement here in chapter four. All right. And so he, he goes up to this relative and he says, sit down. He tells the elders, these leaders of the city, to come and sit down. And it's interesting that the name that the writer gives is probably different than the one that Boaz used for this closer relative. He was a closer relative. I'm sure he would have known his name. But the writer literally calls him Mr. So-and-so, a certain man. He doesn't give him a name, and there's some speculation as to maybe why that is. It could be because of the events that are going to transpire that... Uh, he's implying some kind of a judgment because he had the opportunity to do the right thing. He doesn't end up doing that. And so he doesn't deserve a name in the annals of history. Or it could be that they wanted to preserve any embarrassment to this man's family line uh, and people within the town. I don't don't know, but he calls him Mr. So-and-so and and Mr. So-and-so sits here and the elders sit here and Boaz comes to verse three and is going to extend an invitation. And this is what... Uh, it says then he said to the closest relative Naomi who has come back from the land of Moab has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech and so i thought to inform you saying buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people and if you'll redeem it redeem it but if not tell me that i may know for there is no one but you to redeem it for i am after you And the closer relative said, I'll redeem it. And so as you come to verses 3 and 4, Boaz uh, speaks first. It's interesting. He speaks first of the property, this piece of land. He doesn't start by talking about uh, Ruth. Now, Naomi has this piece of land to sell. She couldn't farm it herself. She probably didn't have the funds to hire people to come and farm it for her. And so she's in a situation where she's got to sell this piece of property. And Boaz simply says, listen, you're the next of kin. Uh, you have the right of redemption, that option, and, uh, and you redeem it. But if you're not going to do that, if you're not going to go down that road, then, then let me know now, let all of us know now so that I can take steps in that direction. So he's making his intentions very clear to this closer relative and who's, who responds at the end and says, yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll redeem it. And it sounded, I would imagine, like a pretty good business deal to him. Probably not going to involve a whole lot of cost. So there's not a lot of risk. Uh, he, he was; It would add to its wealth to, to his assets. Uh, he could also, at the same time, do a good civic duty for his family, right? And enhance his reputation in the community. So in his mind, he's probably sitting there going, hey, what's to lose here? What's to lose? Well... Boaz, in verses 5 and 6, this becomes a very pivotal point in the story. Look in verse 5. It says Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. And the closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because i would jeopardize my own inheritance redeem it for yourself you may have my right of redemption for i cannot redeem it and so you have this with with some wisdom and i think some shrewdness on boaz's part he he comes to this gentleman and he introduces a condition and says, hey, oh, by the way, if you buy the land, you, there, there's Ruth here. You need to acquire Ruth in order to raise up an heir. And as he says that, there's one thing. It's, it's so important in that day and era for an Israelite family to have an heir to live on the land, to lose land or to lose their name or their family lineage. It was the equivalent of personal annihilation. It was the worst Tragedy that could befall a family uh, in that day, and so it's really, really important. And so to know that the purpose is not just about land, and it's not just about Ruth, but it's about an heir. It's about the provision of of the extension of a family name and an heir to carry that on into the generations ahead. And so in verse six is the moment of truth where the kinsman changes his mind. He says, "I can't redeem it." Matter of fact, he says it twice. And the, the words that he's using there indicate that it's probably less, even though it may have involved both of these situations, it indicates not so much his unwillingness, but potentially his inability. He's saying, I can't, because he said, literally, he uses the word ruin. I read it in my translation, said jeopardize my inheritance. He said it would literally ruin my inheritance. And... Um, it's a strong word, that word ruin. It's a strong word that's used to refer to warfare. Or it's a word that's used to talk about pests that devour crops, this destruction uh, that happens. And so that's how he's, he's looking at it through those lenses. And he's saying, hey, if, as long as it benefits me financially, okay. But if it's going to cost me too much, I, I'm, I don't think I can do that because there's not going to be a cost of the land, but there's going to be a cost of Teppan take care of Naomi and potentially a wife all right, and an heir that could come along, and he just says, look, I can't redeem it, and so I want you, Boaz, to do that, and so as we come to the end of verse 6, let me just share this before we move into verses 7 to 12, just take away number one, it's, and this is something you guys know uh, in, your, in your minds, but let me just encourage you, it's never wrong to do the right thing, right? It's never wrong to do the right thing, so do the right thing despite the cost, be willing to do the right thing. And I think throughout the book of Ruth, um, you know, Ruth takes a great step of faith and does the right thing by loving her mother-in-law and Boaz taking the right steps. He's even taking the appropriate steps. He's not trying to undermine. He's giving this guy the opportunity to do what's right. And when he puts it to the side, Boaz says, I'm willing to step up and stand in the gap and do the right thing on behalf of our family. And so Doing the right thing. And listen, I I don't know what the right thing is for you. I don't know in your personal circumstances or your personal relationships what the right thing may be. But here's the deal. If we're willing to do the right thing and we go to the Lord and ask him, I believe the Holy Spirit can guide and lead you into that. And to help you understand in the midst of circumstances or relationship, what is the right thing to do? Whether that be at home, at work, with a spouse with your kids, with a boss, even people that may not treat you right, okay? And so the encouragement here, I think, is just follow Boaz's footsteps to do the right thing. And as you do that, as Boaz, exercise faith, know that God will move with you as you move in that direction. And so um, I, wanted, I wanna quickly just share with you a few things. And this this whole theme of redemption has been the focus of Ruth one through four. And I want to pause here for just a second and share some parallels. I don't want to go through this fourth chapter. There's all kind of directions that you could go in, in looking at what's here and what to, to, to share. But I don't want to go through Ruth 4 and not draw some kind of connection to how the parallel between the redemption of Boaz or Boaz redeeming Ruth and Naomi and the redemption that God has provided for us in his son Jesus. And there's a pastor, Wes Feltner, I came across these. I just want to read them to you very quickly and share because I think it's so important that this redemption isn't just something that happens in the moment, but what happens in the midst of this redemption is going to have far-reaching effects for years and years and generations and generations to come. And here's a few things that he mentions. Number one, redemption is costly. Just as Boaz paid a price to redeem, so Jesus paid the ultimate price redeem us. The price, the scriptures say of the precious blood of Jesus. Second, it's a legal act. It's not just costly. It costs Christ his life, but it's also a legal act. Boaz had to be a legal blood relative in order to redeem. And so Jesus, when he came from heaven and took on flesh, he identified with us. And as Hebrews chapter two speaks of how he had to be made like his brothers in every way that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus, through what he did in coming, became our blood relative to all of humanity, to all whom he came to save. Third, it's a loving act. Just as Boaz was motivated to redeem by his love for his family and his love for for Ruth. So Jesus' redemption was motivated by his love. And Galatians 2.20 speaks of the fact that he voluntarily, he willingly, he gave himself up for us. And it was an act of love. And lastly, it's a hopeful act. It's a hopeful act. Boaz and his redeeming Ruth and Naomi is going to give them a secure future, something that at the beginning of the book they didn't have. And so his redemption provides a secure future. And just so the Bible tells us also that you and I who have put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ have been born into a living, secure hope in him. So this theme of redemption, as I said, it's going to have reverberating effects uh, from this decision on into history. And so as we move to verse chap- uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, this is how the writer continues. It says, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel, concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. And so the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. That's kind of an interesting couple of verses. What in the world is going on here? Well, when land was exchanged in their day, it was the custom that whoever was selling it would take off their shoe or shoes and hand them over to the person who was buying it. And that would symbolize a transfer of something going from one person to another person. In a sense, what the guys or what the verses, I guess, are saying is that, listen, these were my shoes to walk in, but now they're your shoes to walk in. And so you see this transfer, not of the property, okay, but of the right of redemption. He says, I'm not going to redeem, you redeem. And so they're they're formalizing it, and these these witnesses uh, here in verses nine and ten says, Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. And moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. So that, okay, this is the reason why, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. And so by, by asking these elders, these leaders of the city to sit down, he's saying, listen, just like we might take a piece of paper and ask a notary to notarize an official document their presence and this legal transaction that happens at the gate is affirming in a legal way this transfer has taken place and we're witnesses to it and this is how things are going to progress as we move ahead. And then in verses 11 and 12, all the people who are in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. And may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel and may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah, and become famous in Bethlehem. And moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this woman. And so, in, in light of what has happened here, these witnesses recognize the honorable thing was done, the loyalty and the love. And so, what they do in light of that is they want to share blessings over Ruth. And over Boaz. And so there are three that are listed here. And the first is a wish for Ruth, a desire. And it's the word Esau, which means wife. And it pictures in this event, this thing that happened, all of a sudden Ruth is now brought in. She's no longer considered a Moabite in the eyes of the the people there. She's no longer considered a foreigner. She's not viewed as a girl. She's viewed as a wife. And so she's been enfolded into the Israelite community as a wife of Boaz. And so they're praying, now that you are one of us, we desire and pray God's blessings, just like he gave to Rachel and Leah, that he would give you great sons and, and, and allow, just like Rachel and Leah had 12 sons from which the 12 tribes of Israel came, they're saying, may you be fruitful. May God bless you with children. The second wish is for Boaz. His loyalty and love would be rewarded it mentions wealth as in power, standing, or even economic blessing, and also fame and renown, that he would found a famous family that would be destined for great things. In other words, they're just saying, may may your name be great in the eyes of all who know you and hear of you. And lastly, that his house would be like the house of Perez, who had a number of male descendants that were a blessing to Israel. Boaz, may your descendants that follow you be a blessing in the same way. And so as we come to the end of verse 12, let me give you a second takeaway. That's this, to live honorably in the present to secure a good name in the future. Live honorably in the present to secure a good name in the future. Proverbs 22, verse 1 says, A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. That favor is better than silver or gold. I came across a story this week about a man named Alfred Nobel. And one morning in 1888, to his shock, okay, imagine this, he woke up that morning to read his own obituary in the paper. And this was a man who invented dynamite, okay? And so what happened was he woke up and he saw this obituary in the paper that he had died and it told the story of his life. But what happened was there was a, a journalistic error in the reporter, is actually his brother who had died. And so they instead of doing a story on his brother, they did a story on Alfred and all that was known about him. And just as you can imagine being shocked to read that yourself, he was overwhelmed because he, he began in that moment to see himself as the world saw him. He began to read about the things and the way that people thought of him and how he was being portrayed in the eyes of the public, and they they saw him as the dynamite king, as a merchant of death, and they, they viewed that was the whole purpose of his life. He'd made a lot of money. He'd amassed a tremendous fortune in that industry, and none of his true intentions, which he really wanted to break down the barriers between man and ideas, none of those were considered. And so in that moment, Alfred Nobel resolved to let the world know the true meaning and purpose of his life, that he wanted to have a good name and to leave a good name more than great wealth. And so he figured one of the ways that I can do this is I can distribute, uh, dispose of my assets and his last will and testament would serve as an expression of his life's ideals. And the result became ultimately the most valued of prizes given to this day to those who have done the most for the cause of world peace. And you guys know it's called the Nobel Peace Prize. And so a good name just like in this story is not something that can be bought with money. But it's it's something that has to be cultivated over time. It's something that's got to be cultivated through moment by moment, day by day, decision by decision, kinds of experiences. And so the encouragement is just to live and make decisions today to secure a good name for yourself and your family, and all who know you in the future. Well, let's look at verse 13 through 17, the third section. And this verse 13 here isn't simply the climax of the chapter that we're in, but it's actually the climax of the entire book. And here's what the writer says. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And so throughout the book of Ruth, we've seen God at work and we recognize things that have happened where he's been working in the shadows and behind the scenes. But in this moment, God steps out from the shadows and he takes center stage. And the Bible says that the Lord enabled her to conceive, that it was the Lord's blessing that he was pouring out and saying, I'm going to make something happen that's not just going to affect their life, but is going to continue to affect the lives of many people after. And so his, his, provision is all sufficient. And we also see it's a reward for Boaz's faithful love and kindness uh, in his act of redemption. Look in verse 14. And the women said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And so you see these blessings that not only came from the elders, but from these ladies who say we're blessing the Lord because he's provided a deemer. We're blessing uh, Obed that he would be made great, that his name, which means literally one who serves would become the servant of Naomi to provide for her, to extend, serve their family well by extending their family name in the course of history. And third, blessed Ruth, that she had been better than seven sons, which is a symbolic way of saying this is the ultimate blessing that could come on an Israelite family, with seven sons. And, what, and, and listen, Naomi, what Ruth has done for you is better than that. And so may you be blessed. May they be blessed as they move forward. And so the third takeaway before we come to our last section and wrap things up is God uses the faithfulness of ordinary people to do extraordinary things. I'll tell you another story of a man named Millard Fuller. You may know who he is, but he and his wife, Linda, found themselves in quite a predicament in their marriage. And Linda tells a story. She said, there came a day when I absolutely I had just had it up to here said I was tired of, of my husband who was a workaholic. I was tired of the extravagant lifestyle that he was providing. I was tired of all the expensive toys that we had because he was married more to money than he was to me. And so she decides I'm going to pack up my bags. I'm going to go to New York city and I'm going to reflect and I'm going to think about where's the future of this relationship going. If anywhere, and she says this, it was true that Millard had a knack for making money. He'd been working at it since he was six years old when his dad gave him a pig to raise. So by the time he turned 12, he'd added cattle, he'd added rabbits, he'd added chickens, and he was making all kinds uh, of money and it seemed that everything he touched turned to gold. In college, he and a friend paid their way through the University of Alabama by selling birthday cakes and desk blotters and they took those, those profits and they put them in rental apartments and and by the time they each graduated with a diploma, they were both making fifty thousand dollars a year. And so after finishing law school, he went into the mail order business and he began to make his fortune as he sold cookbooks to the future homemakers of America. And by the time he was twenty-nine, he was a millionaire. And he said, My goal is to to multiply it tenfold. And he made all of his efforts to strive for that goal and he had given his wife everything that she could ever dream as far as things and experiences but that's when she said I'm going to New York because it wasn't enough and he says this I was in agony he said never had I suffered as I did in those days everything else business sales profits prestige became absolutely meaningless and I imagined God asking me what I'd done with my life besides selling cookbooks and in God's presence, that sounded so ridiculous that I could only cringe. This wasn't part of his plan and it stopped him dead in his tracks. And because he loved his wife, he chased her to New York. And, and there's a happy ending to this. They get reunited, but they work through a lot of concerns, but they make some decisions. And they decide, we're going to sell our businesses. Uh, we're going to give all the money away to charity, and we're going to go Uh, They kept some of it because they had a farm in Georgia that they began to work, but they began to study the Bible together and began to see, God, how would you want us to invest our life? And it was there on that farm that Millard and Linda Fuller first developed the concepts of a house-building venture that eventually formed Habitat for Humanity. And since 1976, Habitat has helped over 10 million people around the globe to be able to have some of their housing needs met, and more than 800,000 people have been helped into a new home, and they're very grateful that, you know, God had a great plan for an ordinary guy who was gifted. He was an ordinary guy, found himself in problems that a lot of people find themselves in, and just decided, I need to reflect, I need to take a risk, and I need to invest myself in something that's going to leave me with a good name that's going to have an impact on people and so that's how God works through history right he takes ordinary people like you and me and through us if we're faithful like Boaz and take advantage of opportunities in front of us he can he can do things we may not even begin to imagine to do extraordinary things. Lastly, verses 18 to 22, it's just a listing of some names here, but I think what God does here is he gives us a chance to come out of the specific circumstances and to look at things from a 30,000-foot view, and this is what it says. Now, these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Amenadab, and to Amenadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, And to Salmon was born Boaz. And to Boaz, Obed. And to Obed was born Jesse. And listen, and to Jesse, King David. And if you flip to the first chapter of the New Testament, that lineage goes from David all the way down to the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ. And so the faithfulness, this is the last takeaway, is the legacy of a godly line is established one person, one family, one generation at a time. A godly legacy is established one person, one family, one generation at a time. And so as I wrap up this morning, I want to take just a couple of minutes uh, just to speak to you men out there, okay? Uh, You husbands and fathers on Father's Day, I want to take just a moment to, to share some thoughts with you about something that Paul shared is going to be an emphasis for us here at Taylor's over the coming year. And that is the theme of discipleship in the home. Multiplying disciple makers is one of our core values here at Taylor's. And so we're going to focus on discipleship in the home. And we're going to start with a focus around marriage this fall and follow that up with a focus on parenting and grandparenting in the winter spring. Okay? And, you know, I remember uh, recently I was in a, in a store and I saw this framed picture. It's attributed to Abe Lincoln. But this is what it said. Abraham Lincoln said, whatever you are, be a good one. Whatever you are, be a good one. And I can say with all sincerity, because Scripture will back it up, that God wants every single one of us who are husbands to be a good husband to our wife. Everyone. And those of us who have children, he wants us to be good fathers. Or those who have grandchildren to be great grandfathers to our grandchildren, right? And one of the reasons that we want to make this a churchwide emphasis is because strong families help build strong churches. And and we want to strengthen this body. And it starts at home. It starts with the most important relationships that we have in our life. And that's why we want to take some steps uh, in this direction in the months to come. Now, Chamley and I just had this past week, we had our 19th anniversary. And uh, I've learned a lot in 19 years, a lot of things I didn't know before I got married. But here's two two things that I've come to realize that I think are true. I think you'll agree. But our marriage is like a pilot house on a ship. And if you're not sure what a pilot house is, that's where the ship is navigated. It's where the steering occurs and and it points the ship in a direction. And marriage is like that. Whatever's happened in our marriage relationships is going to point our life in a particular direction. And the second thing is that when things are going well in a marriage relationship, it helps other things go well. But when we've bumped up against a wall or we've come up against a roadblock or we find ourselves in a real tight place in our marriage, you know what? There's a way for that tension to filter down into every other aspect of our life, every other relationship of our life. And so it's so critical that we build strong marriages within the church and seek to do what we can. And, and nobody drifts into it, right? I mean, none of us who are men have drifted into a great marriage by not involving some kind of work and time and attention. It's like our cars, okay? Those relationships require some routine maintenance. And some of us here may just say, hey, man, I just need some routine maintenance. I need some things to be given a little bit more attention. Some of us may say, we need a major overhaul. We're in the ditch. We need, we need to get out. But see, here's the thing. Uh, you, may, you may be like I was when I got married and realized Chamberlain didn't come along with an instruction manual. When I became a dad four times over, and then my kids didn't come with one. And so I go to the Bible as a Christian as for my instruction manual. and say, okay, God, help me know how these relationships are supposed to work. But it's, it's one thing to know how they're to work, but it's another thing to make them work and to actually live that out. And for, and for a lot of us guys, we might not like to admit it, but we need help to be good dads. We need help to be good husbands, right? And that's where community comes into play. And so on the backside of this marriage event that we're going to host in August, we're going to offer small group opportunities with groups of four to five couples max to get together and to unpack the things that we're going to be talking about in late August. And so that's where we can help walk alongside each other and begin. It won't all change because of a marriage conference and a few weeks in a group. It won't. But you know what? It might be the first step, just like Boaz, took advantage of an opportunity that some of you men in the room today may need to take. You may need to reflect this week. And I would encourage you. My encouragement is for you to do one thing, and that's to go home and reflect and pray and say, God, is this an opportunity you want me to step into? And it may feel like a risk for some of you to participate in the conference or to say, I'm willing to get together with some other couples and, and say, hey, I want to learn. I've got something to offer, but I also want to learn. I need some help too. Because if you're in a marriage relationship, you're growing. There's opportunities to grow. We, none of us are ever going to arrive. There's always room for improvement. And so I just want to encourage you, whether you've been married 40 days, whether you've been married 40 years, that there's going to be something for everybody of every generation at this church to glean from and to encourage you to pray with a sincere heart as to God, is this something I need to be participating in? And so starting next week, starting next Sunday morning, Tim Kimmel is going to be here. He's our guest speaker. Next Sunday is going to be laying the foundation for where we're going uh, in August. And the conference is in your bulletin. You've heard a little bit about it, but it's August the 25th and 26th. It's a Friday night. It's a Saturday morning. And we want to encourage you uh, to save that date and to think about how throughout the fall you might be able to be involved. Because here, listen, the best way to leave a godly legacy for your family, guys, is to love your wife real well. It is. It is. I'm learning that. I'm still learning that. But I think it's true. And I think taking steps like this, when we're faithful in the moment, G. Campbell Morgan said this, you may be God's foothold for things of which you cannot dream. And who knows if taking one little step in a direction that I've talked about in these last few minutes might just start the development of a godly legacy that will have a ripple effect through the ages of time. Amen let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. And thank you, Lord, for the book of Ruth, for all the ways that we have learned about your love for us, your faithful, chesed, loyal love to us, that the grace of God has come to us through history and through ultimately the sending of your son, Jesus. And so, Father, as we um, as we think about that, Lord, we want want our lives to count, not just for now, but we want to begin to lay a track for a, a, a generational impact. And we want it to start with us. And so would your Holy Spirit just help each one of us to take some of the things that we've talked about and to process what are you teaching us? What do you want to tell us and what do we need to do? so, Father, would you be glorified in our life and through our life and that we may strive to leave a good name and a godly legacy as we make decisions today. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.